Well, good evening, loved ones. Grace and peace to you guys. Again, it's a privilege to be preaching God's Word this evening, especially because I'll be starting a new book series in the book of Galatians. And so if you may turn your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be studying his greeting today, starting in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And the title of my sermon this evening is The Messenger of Good News. The Messenger of Good News. I want you to find your places in your Bibles, loved ones. If you please may stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this evening. This is what our Lord has to tell us this evening, church, in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go before our Lord in prayer, church, one more time. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for the blessed opportunity just to gather in your name, Father, just to sing songs of worship to you for really all that you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel, Lord. We praise you that we have new life in you, and I just pray that this um, sermon, as we start the book of Galatians, Lord, we'll just get a deeper, a deeper understanding, Lord, a deeper appreciation of just the heart of the gospel itself, Father, that it's truly a gospel for all the nations, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, remove me as much as possible, that it is your word going through people. And all the Lord, there's going to be a lot of the information that we have to go over today, Lord, that it will all be helpful, Lord, as we go forward together as a church to be able to rightly interpret and divide your word that you have for us here in the book of Galatians. So, Lord, we thank you again for this evening, and we lift up all all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You be seated, church. One hammer in the hands of an obscure Augustinian monk changed the world forever. It was on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. And not only was he calling his fellow professors to examine issues of supreme theological importance, but he was really calling the church to recover what had been hidden during the church during the Middle Ages, that is, the gospel. Where the church fell into darkness by teaching that a person could receive salvation by their own personal merit, it was Luther who brought out light by recovering the doctrine of what is called justification by faith alone. And it's this teaching that a person is not declared righteous before the Holy Triune God by their own works, Instead, they are declared righteous, forgiven by their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior alone. Although this righteousness, of course, is foreign to every sinful human being, it's Christ, the God-man, who credits it to all those who trust in him. Where Christ dies for the sins of his people, we live because of our faith in him. As Romans 1.17 says, the righteous will live by faith. And this was not merely a recovery of a biblical doctrine, but really the gospel itself, thus sparking the Protestant Reformation. Furthermore, it was actually a series of lectures of Paul's letter to the Galatians that led Luther to post his 95 Theses. However, it was although Luther emphasized justification by faith alone, especially in Galatians, this led him and others afterward who studied the book to really overlook key essential aspects to this letter. I'll just go give one example right now. Many Christians today 
assume that Galatians is merely a condensed form of Paul's letter to the Romans. What do I mean by that? Well, because both books teach justification by faith alone, they're probably the same. And although the assumption to read Galatians, or sorry, to, it's, people assume that they read Galatians in light of Romans, and although it's, never, it's always good, right, to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, the danger here for us is that to make Romans the standard to read Galatians, we can't do that. Because we've got to remember that Paul wrote each of these letters to separate audiences addressing different problems. So Galatians must be read in its own right. And when we do that, loved ones, it will lead us to uncover the richness of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Therefore, the point of my text, of the text that we have this evening, loved ones, is this. You can trust the gospel. Simple as that. You can trust the gospel. But why? Why can we trust it? Well, we're going to see two reasons that Paul is going to give us in Galatians 1, verses 1 to 5. The first reason being the divine source of the gospel. And second, the essential message of the gospel. However, before we can dive into our text, there's one thing i got to cover first. Since I am starting a new book, it's necessary to review the historical background to Galatians. Because we must remember that it's, it's a letter from one individual to an original audience with an original intent. And so for us to arrive at a faithful interpretation of Galatians with, of course, the goal of properly applying it to our lives, we have to understand the historical situation surrounding it. Because not only will it help us understand the authorial intent behind this letter leading to right, to right living, but it will instruct us on why this letter is still relevant for us today. So therefore, let's start by answering the first question. Who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Galatians? Well, as Galatians 1, 1 indicates, it was a man called the Apostle Paul. And as recorded in the book of Acts, this is the same Paul called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And not only did he help lay the bedrock of the early church throughout his missionary service, but he will play his part in authoring 13 letters out of the 27 books within the New Testament canon. As a result, it's the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter here. But now this begs a second question. Who is the recipient of Paul's letter? And as Galatians 1-2 indicates, is that he wrote to a series of Gentile house churches in a region called Galatia. And although Galatia refers to that central region in Asia Minor, or for us, just modern-day Turkey in the center of it, Scholars have debated, well, did Paul write to the north of Galatia towards the Black Sea, or did he write towards the bottom, towards the Mediterranean Sea? And despite this debate, scholars today believe that Paul most likely wrote it to the southern part of Galatia. But why? Well, historically, southern Galatia, it became a Roman province under the reign of Caesar Augustus in 25 BC up until around AD 74. Furthermore, it's, it's all the cities when Paul visited in his first missionary journey around like the late 80s, 40s, as recorded in Acts 13 to 14, all those cities that Paul visited were in the southern part of Galatia. Where Luke records more of the geographical names of these cities in the book of Acts, Paul refers to it as the main Roman providential name capturing them all, right? Galatia. A good example to think about this is kind of like the, all the, the United Kingdom, right? You've got all the different nations making the United Kingdom, England, Wales, Ireland. It's kind of like that with Galatia, got all these various cities, but the province is called Galatia. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he wrote to. And so where Paul wrote to the Gentile churches where he planted in southern Galatia, 
It's the dating of the letter that could be a little more trickier, however. And this is due whether or not Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 particularly, refers to Paul visiting Jerusalem during the first church council in Acts chapter 15, or was it a prior visit to Jerusalem? However, many scholars believe that this passage in Galatians does not refer to the Jerusalem council, but when Paul visits Jerusalem during a very severe famine, as recorded in Acts 11, 27 to 30. As Luke records, this is what he says here about this incident. He says, In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius, each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And so with this in mind, let's briefly compare this incident to the autobiographical section of Paul's letter in Galatians 1-2. After Paul encounters the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, he heads to Arabia back to Damascus, Damascus again, and then to Jerusalem three years later. And it was in this first visit, after his conversion, that he would visit guys like the Apostle Paul, James, you know, the Lord's brother, and the leader of the early, who was the leader of the early Jerusalem church. After all that, as Paul says in Galatians 1.21, he says that he then visits only Syria and a place called Cilicia. Fourteen years after that, he then visits Jerusalem for a second time with Barnabas and Titus. So why does all that information matter? Well, these details, loved ones, are crucial to help us understand whether Galatians chapter 2 is referring to the Jerusalem council itself or if it's referring to something else. And when we look closely at the details, loved ones, Galatians chapter 2 is not referring to the Jerusalem council. And let me explain why. The Jerusalem council happened around AD 49. And Paul's first missionary journey ended shortly before that. So, if Galatians 1 doesn't mention Paul visiting Galatia prior to the supposed Jerusalem council in Galatians chapter 2, then people who hold to that position, Paul never had his first missionary journey, right? And so that's why it's, it's better to look at Galatians chapter 2 as a previous visit prior to the Jerusalem council. And the best situation that would have been is Acts chapter 11. This is further supported when Paul writes again at the end of Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, that the three pillars of the early Jerusalem church, James, Peter, and John, said to Paul and Barnabas, remember the poor guys. Of course, those referring to the Judeans who were suffering in that famine, right, in Acts chapter 11. All this then prepares us for the most significant part of this letter. Why did Paul write Galatians in the first place? Well, he says immediately in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. These troublemakers came to these Gentile churches in Galatia and were turning them away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, the letter itself suggests that these troublemakers are really Jewish Christians, or in other words, Judaizers. Why? Well, because they were teaching these Gentile Christians in Galatia that they need to be circumcised. They need to observe these Jewish holidays to be saved. In other words, Gentile Christians needs, or a Gentile Christian needs to become a Jew in order to be a true 
follower of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it's these Jewish Christians that disparage Paul's authority as an apostle, leading him to open his letter by defending his credibility as an apostle, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as Paul references the other apostles in Jerusalem, this also suggests that these Jewish Christians actually came from the Jerusalem church. However, they were, they were discrediting Paul, or as they were discrediting Paul's apostleship, it wasn't that James, John, and Peter were doing so. These Jewish Christians were doing it themselves. Furthermore, when we look at Galatians 6.12, we get a hint to why, what was their motive behind all this, right? Why were they doing this in these churches in Galatia? Consider what Paul says at the end of his letter in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. He says this regarding the Judaizers. He says, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who, com- who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Historically, this is interesting. During this time, as Paul was writing Galatians, there was a resurgence of zealot activity in Israel. And for those who don't know who the zealots are, they were one of the main sects within first century Judaism that had the theology, you could say, of the Pharisees, but really functioned more like terrorists in trying to overthrow the Roman impression in Israel. Furthermore, it was during the Roman governorship of a person named Ventidius Cuminus around 80, 48 to 52 that led the zealots really to wanting to destroy anything Gentile in the nation of Israel. And so it's with this in mind, and and it's ironic because they would do that because they thought that the Messiah would come even faster, although the Messiah came two, two decades prior in the person of Jesus Christ. But besides all that, this gives us a hint to maybe why the Jewish Christians didn't want their Gentile brothers and sisters to maybe get caught up, in the, caught up in this phenomenon. As a result, they took it upon themselves to turn their Gentile brothers into Jews. Therefore, Paul is writing then against these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who were saying that Gentile Christians must become Jewish to be saved. But before I get to the solution then, there's two other things that we need to consider first. One is that this problem it makes complete sense. You might be like, how does that make sense, John? It makes complete sense because if this occurs before the Jerusalem Council in AD 49, as it says in Acts 15, then this problem hasn't been fleshed out yet. Consider what Acts 15.1 says, beginning this chapter. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Because when we think about the Jerusalem Council, That was convened to find a solution to this issue. And so debates ensued between James, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and until eventually they came to the solution that a Gentile does not need to become Jewish to be saved, for both Jew and Gentile are ultimately justified by their faith in Christ alone. However, they did agree that Gentile believers should refrain from eating meat off the idols, meat strangled to animals, eating blood, sexual morality, as really moral barriers for living. But with all that in mind, Paul is dealing with these same issues in Galatians, but before the problem is addressed in the Jerusalem council. So that's very important to keep in mind here then, that this happens before that very important council. But secondly, although these Jewish Christians were wrong to say that the Gentiles must become Jewish to be saved, it was not in the sense where we might be quick to say mere legalism. Despite Paul having a more negative tone, of course, about the law of Moses in Galatians, maybe compared to his other letters like Romans, it is not because he's against the law itself. 
As a matter of fact, it's really quite the opposite. This is kind of what I meant earlier, that despite Luther rightly, you know, you know, unfolding the justification by faith alone, his emphasis on that led him to overlook some essential elements to the book of Galatians. And the key primary example of that is that when he looked at the works-based righteousness of the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church in his time, he read that back into the Judaism of the first century, really leading to a wrong perception of what Judaism was at that time. So in contrast, then, when we look at the literature in this time period, then, what we find is really a Judaism that's not focused on works-based in the first century. Instead, it's what some theologians call, I'm just going to throw this word at you, called covenantal gnomism. Covenantal gnomism. What is that? Well, this is the idea that a Jew is still saved by grace, still saved by believing in the promises of God according to God's covenant with Israel. But they are still to keep the law as really an ethnic boundary marker to maintain their identity as Jews. And so it's not that Ju- Ju- Judaism was primarily works-based and Paul is rejecting the law entirely in Galatians. No. Instead, his problem is the idea of a Gentile becoming a Jew to be saved. Although a Jewish Christian may still observe the law, they too were ultimately justified by their faith in Jesus alone. This is the Galatian problem. The problem is adding to the gospel what already is sufficient in itself. A Gentile cannot be saved by becoming Jewish, for they are saved by their faith in Christ alone. And the same goes for the Jew. Although they should maintain their Jewish identity, there's there's nothing wrong with that, but they can only be saved by their faith in Christ too. Therefore, the message of Paul's letter to the Galatians is not merely that a person is justified by their faith alone in Christ Jesus, Instead, it's a more fuller message that this gospel is good news for both the Jew and Gentile, for all the nations of the world. Where the law was slavery due to human sin, Christ frees both Jew and Gentile to be able to keep it to God's glory alone. And this, is, and this gospel reality, loved ones, is still, still true for us today and forever. As a result, Paul wrote to the Gentile churches in southern Galatia before the Jerusalem Council in AD 49 to, the, to address the problem that Jewish Christians were wrongly teaching that a Gentile needs to become Jewish to be saved. Not only were they denying the gospel message itself at this point, but they were rejecting Paul's apostleship in the process. So in response, Paul defends his apostleship as well as the essential message of the gospel that a person is only saved by their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, with all this background information in mind, again, we got to ask ourselves the question for our passage this evening. Why can you trust the gospel? Well, Paul begins to show us when we consider his first reason in our text this evening. And it's this, loved ones, the divine source of the gospel. The divine source of the gospel. That's the first reason. So look in your Bibles, loved ones, at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2a. We'll cut in the middle there. Paul begins his letter saying this, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So Paul opens his letter to the Galatians with a greeting common to the writing conventions of the first century. And the greeting of a letter usually contained three elements, the author, the addressee, and the greeting itself. However, what we see here is that Paul expands upon this formula in Galatians to really highlight two central themes in his letter. 
And we see the first key theme mentioned in verses 1 to 2. So Paul begins here by really introducing himself as the author of this letter and calls himself an apostle. And an apostle, for those who don't know, refers to a messenger who is sent to deliver a message on behalf of the sender's authority. So with this in mind, Paul immediately qualifies this with a negative statement by saying, I'm an apostle, not from men or by man. So Paul is not an apostle from men or by man. Instead, Paul's call to apostleship, it wasn't from people, wasn't from men or carried out by man. Instead, he's going to qualify this again with a positive statement that I'm, a, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, Paul is an apostle through Jesus Christ from God the Father. That's where his calling comes from. And this comparison is really important because Paul needs to present his credibility to these Galatian churches. As, we, as I talked about a little earlier ago, since these Jewish Christians were falsely teaching that these churches need to become more Jewish to become Christians, Paul needs to defend his credibility as an apostle of Jesus because if not, they're not going to listen to his message at all. And furthermore, when we consider just how emphatic Paul is in defending his apostleship, it really alludes to the reality that these Jewish Christians, what they were sharing with the Galatian church, they were given a different story of how Paul really became an apostle. Where you had the other apostles like James, Peter, John, who were called by Jesus personally, and even and some of them followed him during, during his earthly ministry, Paul's apostleship, they, were, they would say, was affirmed through these other apostles. They would say, you got James, Peter, and John. They still teach the circumcision of the Jews. But you got this Paul, he's not teaching that to the Gentiles. As a result, his message should not be taken seriously because he seems to possess a lesser authority compared to these other apostles. And Paul realizes that, and he has to act fast or they will not take his message seriously. And so what he does immediately then, later on in this letter, is that he defends himself on this matter. Consider what he says in Galatians 1, 15 to 16 by saying, But when God, who from my mother's womb, set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. This same story is recorded in Acts 9, which is really Paul's conversion story to Christianity as he encounters the risen Christ on that road to Damascus. As a result, Paul's authority, again, is not from men or by man. For it is Jesus himself who calls him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And although the later apostles affirm his calling, Paul's apostleship is still by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Therefore, Paul's message is not from man or by any person, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is going to use him as the messenger to preach the gospel to the Gentiles especially. Furthermore, Paul continues to defend his credibility when he, based on what he says at the end of verse 2. So look at your Bibles again, loved ones, where Paul says, all the brothers who are with me. All the brothers um, here can include a, a couple of possibilities. Paul's not specific. Maybe Paul had Barnabas in mind, and I say that because he was his co-worker as he was evangelizing these churches in Galatia. Or maybe Paul had in mind maybe his secretaries because during this time period he had what was called an amanuensis, which would, you know, write down the letters at the dictation of the one sending it. Maybe that's what he had in mind. Or maybe he had in mind the, the, the church of Antioch in Syria because that was the church that actually sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip. 
We don't know for sure, but the point that Paul has in mind here is that this message is not only from Christ himself, but is also affirmed by other brothers. Paul saying, I'm not alone in what I'm about to say. Not only am I from Christ, but there's other brothers who agree with me. And it's with this credibility that Paul then is then able to further speak about the Galatian problem throughout his letter. However, before we begin looking at the rest of the greeting this evening, we got to consider Paul's expansion of this traditional greeting formula in verse 1. Look at what he does here in your Bibles again, loved ones, where he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And it's that last phrase, who raised him from the dead, that it's important for us to think about more closely. Paul says that God the Father raises God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he rose again three days later from the grave, conquering sin and death, right? It's talking about his resurrection. And it's here that Paul's really alluding to a couple things. First, it was God, God is a man, that's who died on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet, it was the Father, by the Holy Spirit's power, who raised him up from the grave. And Paul will mention a little bit later that in our text, this was all according to God's will. But in the meantime, what this passage is telling us about God is that he works as a trinity. Since God is one in his essence, really his nature, he is also united in his work. Although each person of the Holy Trinity, that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each carry out a separate work, each one is united in their one will as God. And as the ancient preacher John Chrysostom would say, I think he's very helpful in this. He says, this Paul, what he does is that he doesn't refer to the acts of the Son, to the Father, or as is to separate them. But instead, this expression implies that there's no distinction in the essence, meaning they're one in all, the, in all that they do. So when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was all according to the one will of the Creator God. And this leads to the second illusion that the veracity of the resurrection is the foundation to our Christian faith. In other words... If the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then Jesus is nothing more than a liar, a lunatic, or to some, a legend. He never existed. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our faith in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Furthermore, I mention this because many people in our culture do assume that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is utter nonsense because of the seeming impossibility of miracles themselves. And usually this stems from a belief that oh, only the material universe exists, what can be measured empirically with the five senses, right? Miracles go beyond the laws of nature, so the resurrection is really impossible. But isn't that the point of miracles? A miracle is not something common to nature, but something that transcends it according to God's infinite power. And even when one analyzes the gospel account themselves, really the simplest explanation in a lot of the evidence is that on the third day, um, or Jesus died, and after the third day, he rose again from the grave. Why? Because simply, Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was, the Son of God. Therefore, loved ones, do not forget the significance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our entire faith depends upon this one event. Even if, if Christ died on the cross, it would have been in vain if he did not rise again from the grave. 
For there have been other, you know, religious teachers and philosophers that have come and gone, right? you got individuals like Buddha. He's dead. Confucius, he's dead too. Plato, smart guy, but he's dead. you got Muhammad, Maimonides, Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, guys like Kant, Marx, Nietzsche, Rousseau, and Hawking, and every other religious leader that has come and will come and go, they will all die and pass away. But with Jesus of Nazareth, he is the resurrected Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father as we speak. Not only does he reign now as our prophet, priest, and king, but there will be a day when he will return to restore this fallen world in glory. And for those who believe and place their trust in him alone, they will experience such everlasting peace, a joy that surpasses all understanding, and eternal life that only Jesus can give as God himself, who has life in himself. Everyone else will be judged accordingly for their sinful rebellion against God. For God is the standard of goodness. It is in Christ that were paradise lost, and Adam is now paradise gained in Christ. So loved ones, keeping this in mind, rest in the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. No matter how heavy the trials you may be going through are right now, there will be a day that you will be resurrected in eternal glory with him because he has been first been resurrected for our sake. Because if not, then we would be the most pitied of all people. However, the fact that the gospel narratives themselves present the historical account of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, you can rest assured that your hope is not from men nor by man. Instead, comes from a divine source, divine revelation the word of God, the Bible, through Jesus Christ, from God the Father. And if there is anyone here, maybe anyone listening online, who disagrees with what I've said about the resurrection of Jesus, I challenge you with this. Study the gospel accounts for yourselves, and it's good for us loved ones to do the same. Because we cannot take someone else's word for it. If you, believe, if you deny the resurrection, you cannot believe someone else's word. Because how do you know that they're telling the truth? Maybe they're telling lies like the Jewish Christians were in Galatians. Instead, study the gospels for yourselves and take God at his word. Because I can assure you that when you do, you will meet the Jesus who he said he was himself, the Lord. Therefore, the Apostle Paul defends his credibility then by appealing to the divine source of his calling, the triune creator, God. This idea will be further expounded upon in his letter, such as in Galatians 1 and 2. But in the meantime, there's another key theme. Paul alludes to in his greeting that will further be expounded in this letter too. And this leads us to consider the second reason why you can trust the gospel, which is this, the essential message of the gospel. The essential message of the gospel. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, at Galatians chapter 1, verses 2b to 5. Paul writes here, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So where Paul introduces his letter by appealing to the divine source of the gospels his greeting progresses toward the next part the recipients of it. And again as we all know they are the churches of Galatia. Again, a church being an assembly of people called out from the world by God to be God's kingdom citizens here on earth, that's what these churches in Galatia were. 
And in the first century, they wouldn't have big buildings like this back in the day. They would have met up more in house churches, which would have spread across the area of southern Galatia. Furthermore, since Paul did plant these churches in, in his first missionary journey, he was deeply concerned when he found out that they swerved to a different gospel. This is what he says again in Galatians 1, 6-7. He says again, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul begins his letter by making a succinct but clear presentation of the gospel in his greeting as well. So look again at your Bibles, loved ones, for the sake of emphasis in Galatians 1, 3-5. Paul writes this again, that grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And although Paul closes his greeting with a typical expression of grace and peace, as he does in most of his letters, he expands upon it here. And due to the really the grammar content of this expansion, Many scholars believe that this is evidence of an early church confession of the gospel. Now, why do I say that? Well, first, you got the word to rescue. This is the only time that Paul ever uses this word in all the Greek in all his letters. And that is because he probably borrows it from an earlier tradition that the Galatians would have known, like an early church confession. These exist all over the New Testament, particularly in the letters. But not only that alone, but this is further strengthened by the content of Galatians 1, 3-5, which is really a succinct presentation of the gospel. And the fact that closes this, or, and, and the fact that kind of seals the deal for this, is that this entire section closes off with a doxology, which is an expression of praise to God, which only occurs here in all of Paul's greetings in his letters. Again, it's these little details that points to the fact that Paul is utilizing an early church confession to remind the Galatians that as he begins his letter, you got to understand the essential message of the gospel. So let's kind of break down this ancient church confession one piece at a time. And the first aspect that we need to take into consideration is the phrase, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. And this is significant for many reasons. But as I said earlier, this letter was written before, most likely, the Jerusalem Council in AD 49, during Paul's first missionary journey. And if that's the case, this is Paul's first letter that he writes out of all his letters in the New Testament. And what that also means then is that this is the first time in Scripture that Paul uses the phrase grace and peace. And so a question that follows up then, well, where did he get this greeting from? What influenced him to use the words grace and peace? Well, there's a couple things we can keep in mind. First, the word grace in Greek, it stems from a similar Greek word, meaning greetings, right? Where, where the Greek word for grace is charis, the Greek word for greetings is chiron. Very, very similar. But the, that re- word for greetings, that was the word that was a common greeting term in the Roman Empire as people were writing letters in the first century. That's regarding greetings. That's where this idea of, of grace comes from. And since Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, it makes sense that he would adopt this language for his letters. Furthermore, since Paul himself was also a Jew, the common greeting in Jewish letters in the first century was this idea of peace, or in the Hebrew, shalom. And so by Paul, Paul combining both Jewish and Gentile elements together, this is really a, a clever way to t- really emphasize his message that the gospel is both for Jew and Gentile. However, 
What does the phrase grace and peace mean, however? Not only is this the beginning of the ancient church confession that we have here in Galatians 1, but it's really a summary of the gospel itself, that phrase grace and peace. Because where grace itself signifies the cause of the gospel, that God first showed grace to us, it's the peace that comes from that that illustrates the effect of the gospel. Because it's only by the grace of the creator God alone that anyone can be saved, that God gives us the gift of salvation in his son Jesus. And we need this because every human being has sinfully rebelled against him. And as a result, the necessary consequence, as we know, is eternal death in hell. Since God is eternal and our sin is eternally offensive to him, the only justifiable penalty for our sin is eternal death in hell. And now when I say that, if there's anyone here online or I know we have friends, that when we share that part of the gospel, the bad news, right, people are offended by that. It sounds harsh to them. Some may say that they cannot believe a God like that. They might say, I thought God is love. When you talk about sin and judgment, that is not the God I want to believe in. And even when Christians do talk about how God sends his son to die for people, isn't that just cosmic child abuse? Again, they might say, I can't believe a God like that, an angry God, for the God sounds more like a moral monster to me than anything. However, the people that we encounter that, that um, thinks this way, or anyone listening online, right, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind when it comes to, really, the cross of Christ, the gospel. And it's this, that God does not demand our blood, but really, he demands the blood of his son to pay our penalty for sins. And not only could we not save ourselves, we wouldn't because we love our sins more than God. And it is not really a question of whether God exists or not, but it's really, at the end of the day, we know he exists in our heart, in our heart of hearts as the first necessary cause of everything. But if people at that point are still not convinced, then I think what's helpful is like, well, let's think about morality for a minute. What's the standard for, for right or wrong? What makes something right? What makes something wrong? Some people might say people themselves, which, all right, but what happens when people disagree? I might believe murder's wrong, as you, as you guys, but what happens when we get like serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer, who, who actually enjoys that in a very twisted way? Again, who do we go for the standard? Well, maybe society then, some people might say. All right, but what do you do when governments like the Third Reich think, it, think it's okay to wipe out millions of Jews during the Holocaust? Again, these are not sufficient, sufficient reasons in themselves. They are either at best ignorant or at worst arbitrary. And of course, I will say that there's more similarities than differences in the world when it comes to morality. But again, we arrive back at square one. What's the standard? Well, in contrast, as we know, loved ones, when it comes to the Christian worldview, we can say what is right and wrong objectively. Not how I feel, but objectively. What is true, how, how it is. We can know what is right and good because it, that, all that points back to the one who is goodness in himself, the creator God of the Bible. Furthermore, we can know what is wrong, what is evil, what is sinful in this world as it contrasts to God's perfect nature. Therefore, where God is good, humanity is sinful. And as the just judge of the universe, God must do what is right by judging sin because that's who he is by his nature. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be good. He would cease being God. And if God is not good and there's no God, then what's really the meaning of life? Why be moral? Why live? But praise God, that's not the predicament we're in, beloved ones. Because he has provided the solution to heal the brokenness that we all feel in this broken world. Instead of demanding our blood for our sinning against him, 
He offers his perfect son to die in our place as a substitute. As John 3.16 famously says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Therefore, if you believe in the God-man Jesus Christ, by faith alone and repent of your sins and live for him as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be justified, declared righteous to live as he ought, enjoying the internal pleasures and the joy that can only be accessed by faith in Christ Jesus. And this message is true because, again, he rose again from the grave. This is the grace that Paul is reminding the Galatians about. Not only is it a gift that no one deserves, we can't earn it, it's available to all who believe in Jesus by faith alone, whether you are Jew or Gentile. As a result, the effect of the good news after this grace is the peace that a believer has with God. And the idea of peace or shalom, it indicates a complete wholeness. It's found, um, this is only found only after one has been forgiven of their sins before God. Because where everyone is a slave of sin, Jesus says, we are set free when we believe in him as Lord and Savior for salvation alone, right? Where a person may see the wrath of God due to their sin, they are able to see his infinite love in the cross of Christ when they're forgiven. As Jesus, helps, as Jesus himself says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 And even the prophet Isaiah, right? When he spoke of the cross of Christ 700 years before the event even happened, he prophesied saying this, right? But he was pierced, talking about Jesus. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his, by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished for the iniquity on him for us all. None of this comes from keeping the law alone, or being a good person for that matter. If anything, the law itself was really a tutor to help God's people to live a life of holiness before him. But as the law also shows, because of the sinfulness of humanity... Whether Jew or Gentile, no one can keep the law. No one can be perfectly good. That is why the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah. And the New Testament shows that the, that the fulfillment of the Messiah is in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law, who came to redeem his people back from all the nations, back to himself from their sin. It's only in Christ that he can offer this grace and peace, not only in this life, but also in the next. Therefore, Paul keeps progressing with his church confession, and he says again that, again, the source for grace and peace only comes from God. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, in verse 3 again. Paul says that grace to you and peace from who? From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does, again, salvation come from both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's from the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, and not only that, but look what, at what Paul says, what Jesus does for us in Galatians 1.4. Paul writes that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Why does Jesus give up, give, gives himself up for our sins? Well, Paul gives the reason why in verse, in verse 4 where he says to rescue us from this present evil age. And this present evil age, really, just to keep it simple, is really a Jewish way of understanding that we are currently living in a fallen world, a time of evil, where sinful desires are running rampant in the world, whether it be from the devil, 
the world itself, or even our own human hearts. However, as the scriptures make clear, all this is passing away. All this will pass away. As 1 John 2.17 says, And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. All of this fallen world will one day come to an end. The one who does the will of God will live forever. And this is only possible when you place your faith in Christ alone. It is the Lord himself who rescues you by keeping you until the very end when he returns to recreate this fallen world. And in the meantime, until that day comes, you can trust in God's providential care. For Paul finishes Galatians 1.4 by saying that all this is done, all that, he has, all that I have said about the gospel has been done according to the will of our God and Father. It is according to the will of the triune Godhead that God the Father sends his eternally begotten Son to die in the place of sinners from this present evil age. Not only is it the Father who raised him from the dead, but also the Spirit who empowered the Son to do all that he did and came to do while he was here on earth 2,000 years ago. As a result, with all this in mind, the glorious and precious truth of the gospel, there's only one right response then to all of this, to this great salvation. And that's to praise God. And this is exactly how Paul finishes his greetings to the Galatians. So look at verse 5 in your Bibles, loved ones. This is where Paul writes, Now to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When it comes to God's glory, just to explain that, there are two aspects to God's glory. It's just helpful for us to understand this passage. First is you got the internal glory of God's greatness and all his infinite perfections. Really, you can put it, it's the weight of glory that is part of who he is in his essence and existence. If God was to lose this, again, he would cease being God. But that's the first aspect of glory. The second aspect is the external glory that God's creation, whether it be the plants, the animals, the trees, or as we as people, rightly ascribe to him as the creator. So to give God glory at the end of the day is to rightly praise him as Lord and Savior, as the creator for all time and now and forever. And the only response to such worship is an amen. So be it, agreeing with all that Paul has written so far in his letter. Therefore, the essential message of the gospel is this, that God sent his eternally begotten son to redeem sinners back to himself again. And not only is that true because of the resurrection, but it ought to lead us at the end of the day always to worship him in light of it. So loved ones, let's live for our God. Let's live for him. Do not live for this present evil age. As Paul summarizes all of this very well in Titus 2, 11 to 14, it's a big chunk of scripture, but a good one to summarize all this. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Where this world, of course, can only offer temporary happiness, which leads to death at the end of the day, it is God's grace, as revealed in his son Jesus, that redeems and cleanses his people from all the nations, from their sin. As a result, again, worship God with your lives, loved ones. As you eagerly wait for the return of his coming to restore this fallen world, live a life worthy of the gospel. Love God as you love your neighbor by sharing them with the good news. Whether at work, school, and all that you do, any opportunity that you get, 
Pray for opportunities and share the gospel. For it's only through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that people can be reconciled before the God who made him. And it's because of that you can trust the gospel. For it is only the creator God who, offer, who not only offers it, but makes it possible that it's only through, through faith, through his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we arrive at the end of Paul's greeting to the Galatians, and we'll see next time that he just jumps right into immediately by addressing this Galatian problem. In the meantime, you can trust the gospel because of its divine source, that it comes from God, and also that it's the essential message of the gospel that matters. But this letter, this isn't only a letter about being justified by faith in Christ alone, but it's a letter about the gospel being good news for both Jew and the Gentile, people for all the nations, right? Paul was not only willing to share the gospel, but also, as we saw here, he was willing to defend it too. So with this in mind, as a last exhortation, contend for the gospel. As you live a life worthy of the gospel, defend it, share it, preach it at all costs. Although we live in a secular culture that does not know God or doesn't really care to know him, we ought to love him in such a way that we share the good news with them. Otherwise, they will go to hell. And so allow that not to happen without us at least praying for them listening to them, challenging their beliefs, befriending them, and living a life in such a way that we are pointing them to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because as for Luther, the Apostle Paul, and for every single Christian in, in church history can at least test to this, that indeed when we do that, the righteous will live by faith. Let's go before our Lord in prayer, loved ones.